All right. Well, welcome to Cornerstone. Uh, most of the faces I see here, I recognize. If you're someone that's new to Cornerstone, good to have you here uh, this weekend. We love it when people come visit us and, and worship Jesus with us. And so what we're doing today is we're starting off on a new series. We're going to be spending the next several weeks in the book of Isaiah. Now, if you've, if you've never read the book of Isaiah before, don't feel bad because many people haven't. It's a book that's, and I, let me just put it this way. I think it's probably one of the greatest literary texts of the Old Testament and potentially even the whole Bible. But it's like many books that are classics. People quote it a lot, but they've never read it. And so what I want to do is, is I want to take a, a journey with you into the book of Isaiah. I hope you'll see that this book has an amazing story to tell us about who Jesus is and and who God is and who we are. And so I'm, I'm really excited to kind of to, to take and, and, and open that up. Now, here's, here's where I just want to start us off to get us, to get us going uh, in where we're kind of wrestling with some of this stuff. I really do believe that, that we live in a world that on so many levels, we're facing so many issues and so many problems and so many of the simplistic solutions that people are giving as kind of remedies to what's going on in this world are so far-fetched and so unsatisfying and so unable to actually help us to deal with life. I think the, underneath those issues, we have things like deep within us, we feel we have the solution. And in fact, if you're sitting right there right now and you think you have any type of a solution to the problems that are facing not only you, but your world, you're going to find quickly that you don't have those solutions. Not only within us, but then oftentimes we go to family and friends. And, and family and friends, their solution to, to us many times is that really what you need is you need to find happiness, you need to find comfort, you need to find safety. If you can just find those things, then somehow this will be a remedy to whatever problem you're facing inside of this world. We're bombarded all the time, aren't we, with commercials. Like I, I was watching TV kind of over this weekend with my kids, and it's just nonstop commercials telling you, just buy our product. This is the remedy to everything that you're about. If you just, if you just had our product, everything would be great. And there was this commercial, and I've told you this before. It was about a truck, and I thought, you're right. <laughs> this weird inner part of me was telling myself, if I had that particular truck, I would have comfort and safety and security and, and happiness. Right now, everything's starting to ramp up for politics, right? Politicians telling us, we have the answer to your problem. We, in our solution, we're either going to introduce to you this, this, this reality of socialism, that will make you happy, that will make you safe, that will make you comfortable, or else we're just going to make America great again. Whichever it is that we do, everybody has a solution for how it is that we're going to find this, this solution, this remedy to our world. We're bombarded by it. But I think we're asking big questions, and let me just even say it this way, most of us as we look back in history, we don't realize it, but I think we're asking generational questions right now. I think the amount of people that are leaving the church at such a rampant rate, and I'm not talking just Cornerstone, I'm talking the church in general throughout the United States, there are just gigantic big questions that they're asking, and we keep giving them answers that are 20th century, 19th century, 18th century. They're wanting to know answers to questions right now, and if we don't give it to them, they're going to find elsewhere where they can find the answer to these questions. 
And I think this is what's so cool about studying the book of Isaiah is that he's going to point us to the place that we can actually find the answers to our questions, and that is to the living Holy One of Israel. He's going to bring us to this point where we encounter the living God. We're going to see him from a direction that maybe you haven't seen him before. But the big issue is, and let me just say this to you, Unless God speaks, we will never know the answers to questions. And the good news is, is that God wants to give us his wisdom. He wants to give us answers to these big questions. He wants us, and I would even say this way, he wants to help us see beyond the false hopes that so easily kind of entangle us in life and, and to meet with God at the deepest level. Isaiah is this book that it brings you to this encounter to allow you to see the living God so that in the face of the living God, all the other problems that you have have pale in comparison to this one who sits in unapproachable light. This is what Isaiah is going to bring. But the difficulty, I don't know if you face this, is that we oftentimes don't listen to God. And because we don't listen to God, we start to fill our minds and we start to fill our ears with all kinds of noise going on. I mean, I, just the other day I decided this last week, I'm going to watch the news. I, I check out of the news for a while, but then I check back in to see what's going on in the world. So I, I kind of veer through the cable channels of MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, and it's just this constant echo chamber. Whatever your political situation is, that's where you go find answers to whatever the solutions are in the world. And no wonder people are so angry. No wonder, and I'd even say this, what I tell my kids, they're just flat out poopy. <laughs> everybody's upset. Everybody's angry. It's this echo chamber resounding over and over. But finally, whatever reason, we stop and listen to God. And we learn quickly that our God does not stutter. And I think sometimes because we don't listen to him, he can become difficult to hear. And this is what's going to happen in the book of Isaiah. He's going to say things to his people out of this literary masterpiece, this masterpiece that he's written, that's been woven together in such a way that we will come like the people of old, like Israel. And that's what I'm hoping as we, we study this book, as we, as we read through the book, we will come like they did and encounter this God that angels are standing all around him, flying, singing his praises over and over and over, proclaiming of him, he's holy, he's other, he's distinct and that all of the answers and all the solutions to life will not be found inside of you. They will not be found from your family and friends. They will not be found from politicians. They will not be found in commercials. They will not be found from Oprah. They will not be found from Donald Trump. They will not be found from anyone, Sam, I am. There's one place and that's the Holy One of Israel, the living God. That's it. So what we're going to do is we're just going to actually take a look at the first few verses of Isaiah 1. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open them there. If you don't have any Bibles, there's some people walking down. Just raise your hand. They'll bring you a Bible. But we're going to go to the book of Isaiah. We're going to look at chapter 1, and we're going to ask some questions about this that are going to become very important to where we're going. Now, where we're going to be, the questions we're going to be asking that I think are very important is this. We're going to ask, first of all, this question of, of what? Okay, that's going to be our first question. So when you're studying the Bible, you're always asking questions. And the first question we're going to ask is what? Then the second question we're going to ask out of verse 1 is we're going to ask, ask the question of who. 
And then the final question that we're going to ask is we're going to ask the question of when, okay? So this is oftentimes when I'm studying the Bible, this is what I do. I just go into it and I'm trying to understand the who, what, when, why, where, how. And in this case, we're going to ask the questions of what and who and when. That's what we're going to do today to kind of understand this. Now, if you look down in verse 1 and you have your Bibles, you'll see the very first thing as far as what is this idea of the vision. Now, this word, the vision, is sometimes difficult to understand. One of the first things you have to understand about it is it doesn't say visions, but it says what? Vision. One singular vision. Now, what's interesting about this vision, when we talk about this prophet Isaiah, is that probably what it is, is it's this compilation of all the sermons that he preached in all of his life, all probably at the end of his life, pulling these sermons together. And so sometimes they feel like maybe there's not a a chronological reality to them. But what he's doing is composing more of an, an anthology of all of these different ways in which he's encountered the living God. But he doesn't see them as multiple visions. He sees them as one vision for how it is, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, how we're supposed to see life. The Holy Spirit carried him along at the end of his life to be this one cohesive thing. And and each of these unfolding sections comes along in such a way that it's teaching us about how it is we're supposed to see things rightly because there's another aspect of this idea of vision that's important for us to understand. When we use the word vision, sometimes we have this idea, right? We, We come from like movies and TV. And so the way that we see vision is this person entering into this awkward like trance state in which they say and do weird things while their eyes roll up into the back of their head. And we call that a vision. That's not what he's doing here. Now, there's no doubt that it's miraculous. This vision, this what of what he's seeing is a miracle. It's God taking and opening his eyes in ways that he couldn't see before because this is what a vision is. And if you're, you're taking notes and you want to write this down, I think this is one of the big things is that when we talk about a vision, it's a way of seeing and perceiving life in a whole new way. That's the vision. In other words, it comes from the premise, and let me just say this to everyone in this room. Let me just let you all off the hook. None of us in this room sees life accurately Nobody. And in fact, if you're somebody in this room that feels like you see life accurately, you should be very scared. Nobody sees it accurately. We tend to live by our senses, by our daily impulses. We tend to live by our desires. But this book is a glance, most importantly, in how one might see God and perceive everything from a completely different angle, from a different dimension, from a different perspective. In other words, I've always heard you need to put yourself into somebody else's shoes so you can see things accurately. The book of Isaiah, what it's going to do in this vision is it's going to take and put us into the very lenses of God and allow us to see the world in which he sees it. That's the vision that he's bringing here. It's really similar to what he, what he talks about in, in Second Kings, or what the writer of Second Kings talks about. If anybody knows this story, uh, there's a vision that takes place in which Elisha, one of the prophets, he sees things accurately. But his little Paduan learner that's alongside of him called his servant, we see him, and, and, and we know in this story that the king uh, of Syria was, was perplexed as to why the Israelites kept thwarting a lot of the different things he was doing. And finally, the king of Syria just says, fine, I'm going to send my armies, I'm going to send my soldiers, my horses, and they're going to come upon the city. And what we find in this case, when he talks about the servant of the man of God or of Elisha, 
It says he rose early in the morning and went out, and behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And look what he says here. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? The perfect question. Right now, that's the question everybody's asking. I don't know if you've caught about it. What shall we do? What are we going to do with this world we live in? What are we going to do with everything feeling like it's falling apart? It feels like everything around us is going crazy. I know what the solution is. Let's move to Texas. <laughs> Who in their right mind would go there? <laughs> well, then we'll go to Idaho or Montana or Wyoming. Then we'll be safe. Yeah, you've never sat a winter there, have you? And they're safe about it. Let's elect new people. Let's get new judges. Let's have better schools. Let's have a better this. Let's have a better that. Everything in the back of our head is what shall we do? And I love what has happened here. Verse 16. Here comes Elisha into it. And I think this is where the church of Jesus Christ needs to be in a greater way. While the world is sitting down asking, what shall we do? I think the church should be saying, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. But yet the church goes, what are we going to do? If they take away our rights, as if God in heaven goes, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Free speech down the drain? Well, I'm quitting. With loss of gun rights? Oh my gosh, how are the people going to protect themselves? Our God sits over all things. It's not that I want to lose rights, don't get me wrong. But I think the church of any place should never be saying, what shall we do? See, and here's the vision. I want you to catch this vision that comes up in 2 Kings. Elijah prayed and he said, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he might see. In other words, God, give him a vision of reality. Oh God, and I would just say this, crying out on all of our behalf, God, give us a vision of reality. Give Cornerstone Church this morning in the midst of all these questions of what shall we do. So look at this. The Lord opened the eyes of the young man and saw, behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Suddenly he's like, yeah, we're good. We're good, we're good. I don't think we realize that's our God. In the midst of asking this question, what should we do? This is our God. But with this now, when we talk about this being our God, we need to understand that this prophetic, this prophetic reality, this prophetic vision is our only link into reality. In other words, as we scan around this world with our senses, with our potential of understanding, with our desires, with our wants and all those different things, we can be fooled, but the only one who cannot be fooled, who give us, gives us his revelation in God's word, is Yahweh, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He cannot be fooled by anything because he's the one who sees things absolute real. And that's what he does. He gives vision to us. He gives revelation to us to understand. Now, the sad part is, is we tend to, and the world tends to marginalize God, but in fact, it's with him that we must deal daily with every facet of life. And I love this, which you're going to see in the book of Isaiah. He doesn't just give us facts, but he, he's going to shed new light on facts, new insight into what it really is that life is about. And because these insights come from God, man, it naturally begins to clash with our intuitive sense of things. 
But here's the thing when we ask the question, what? Now, just get this into our heads. When we ask the question, what, is it's a vision, and it's this compelling way of seeing things as God sees things. That's what the book of Isaiah is going to do for us. I believe the more that we go through Isaiah, all of our eyes are going to be opened up, and I think we're going to be like a little Padawan learn of Elisha. Our eyes are going to be open, and we're going to see that we are not alone. We shouldn't be asking, what shall we do? Because our God is in control of all things. That's the first aspect of it. That's the first question. You with me? Not a bad question, is it? Here's the second question. If the first one is what, the next question is who? Well, the next question is a little bit easier to answer because when we talk about this idea of a vision, we see it right off the bat that the, the who of this particular context is Isaiah. Now, who in the world is Isaiah? Well, we're going to learn a lot about him. We're going to learn all kinds of facts and different things about who he is. In fact, one of the things that I'm learning more about that I didn't realize is he was probably part of the royal family. He was probably of the line of David in some way. Now, in being one of these people, though, I think the key aspect that I want to kind of zero in on that I think summarizes the whole message of Isaiah. Now, I'm not going to be simplistic, but I'm going to give you a simple answer to the whole message of Isaiah, and it's found in his name. Are you ready? You can write this down. Yahweh is salvation. God saves. Inside of Isaiah's name is the answer. It announces this amazing grace from heaven itself. It's the answer to life's questions in that everything about what shall we do, when people are sitting around asking what shall we do, the answer is not government. The answer to us is not somehow coming up with a great plan humanly. The answer to the question of what shall we do, here it is, Shahweh, our Lord, is salvation. That, my friends, is a huge statement. We've made it so small. We've made it just about the fact of how can I not go to hell? That's what we think about when we think about salvation. But God is thinking so much bigger than about us not just going to hell. Don't get me wrong, I don't want to go to hell. And I'm so thankful I've been rescued. But it is so much bigger than that. When he says that he's salvation, he's talking about salvation not just from our past and not just from our future, but a salvation even today from our present. When you woke up this morning, whether you knew it or not, and you raised from the from slumber, you go to get out of bed, and because some of you are older than, uh, let's see, I'm 47, you're older than 48, and so you were creaky, getting out of bed, you didn't realize it, but God is salvation. Those of you that have little kids like my family and everything's going chaotic on Sunday morning because that's always when Satan shows up at a house. <laughs> Yahweh is salvation. In everything that we're facing on a daily basis, Yahweh is salvation. And we see this so big in, in one of the encounters that he has and it's one of the most famous sections of the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, God decides in this vision, now just imagine this for a second, to call up into heaven Isaiah. Now, we've always heard people say, oh, you know, I went to heaven, and it was so wonderful, and it was so peaceful. Let me give you an accurate representation of what happens when people show up in heaven. 
It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Oh, it's so peaceful and wonderful here. Oh, what did he say? Woe is me. Let me translate for you. Oh, no. For I am lost, he says. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst in the midst of people of unclean lips. In other words, I I can try to look inside of me, but the problem is in me too. I can try to look outside of me, but the problem is there too. I not only am inside, but externally living in a world that when comparison to this holy God, woe is me, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here's the question he's asking. What shall I do? Now enters in grace. Watch this. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand a burning coal, and he had with him tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Why? Because Yahweh is salvation. You're going to learn as we look at this book of Isaiah, and we encounter this living God, That the who becomes so important. It's not just this is about Isaiah, but it's also now about this this grand one who does sit in unapproachable life, who rules over all things, that he controls all the nations, that in spite of everything, feeling chaotic and out of control, our God is orchestrating and weaving everything together. And there's this one that's called the servant and the king that Christian talked about a few weeks ago that now gets littered in and through this text, this one that's all being put together in such a way Why? Because Yahweh is salvation, not just of the big things, but even down into the smallest things, our God saves. This is the who. I think this is something we can never get over. My hope as we go through the book of Isaiah, we'll never think that we've somehow grown past it. But they, in fact, will ask God to to not only enliven it in us, but they will ask God to see it in a clearer and more clearer way. Because what starts to happen from these people is you're going to see all throughout the book of Isaiah is that they know about this God, but they start to just go through the motions. They become apathetic. They kind of just, their hearts become cold. And in the coldness of their heart, they begin to just, again, see God as there and present. Sure, he might save me but from hell. But when it comes to everyday life and what's going on, they knew better, and they knew that somehow they had the better solutions, and if they didn't have the solutions, they could go to the Egyptians, they could go to the Assyrians, they could go to the Babylonians. None in there, though, did they realize that the Babylonians don't save, the Assyrians don't save, the Egyptians don't save, even in your own self, it doesn't save. The only one that saves, the only one that is Yahweh, is our salvation, is our God. Nobody else. That's who is in this book. You're going to see throughout this, our God reigns. But you're also going to encounter his people. 
See, it's not just him, because we're now going to see that he's going to talk about this group of people in Judah, in Jerusalem. In other words, and let's just put it this way, we're going to talk about his people. He's going to have a lot to say about all these other different groups, but he's going to have a lot to say about his people being his people to be a blessing to the nations that are around them. So often when I sit in churches, we think that the problem is out there. The problem is not out there. The problem is right here with us. See, this is what Isaiah is going to get after. We should not apply this to America. Over and over, I'll hear people say, you know, if our God, if they would just repent and humble themselves, he would heal our land. Let me tell you something. He doesn't need to heal our land first and foremost. He needs to heal his church. He needs to heal us so that we might become the people that can proclaim the greatness and the goodness that Yahweh saves to the world. He's begin with us. This is what Isaiah is going to argue is that the downside of this is, is when we begin to think in our head that they are the problem, they become the enemy. But listen to me, that world that's out there that doesn't know Jesus Christ, that has not encountered the reality that Yahweh is salvation, they are not the problem, they're the opportunity. Those ones out there are the ones we need to reach and proclaim and to help them to understand that Yahweh is salvation. All of their worry motor and frustration motor and concern to try to understand this life is answered in one person, the suffering servant Jesus, Yahweh, is salvation. But what happens to us? Look at verse 2. The shock and the horror for God is not what's happening out there. The shock and the horror for God, and let me just say this, it is the broken heart of the God of all heaven saying, what in the world has happened to my people? Children, he says, have I reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. Now understand this, none of them would have thought they were rebelling. Right? I mean, the other day when I was dealing with my children, it was amazing when we had a problem, none of them thought it was their fault. Miracle! Because it couldn't be my fault. I'm a great parent. Just kidding. How? He says the ox knows its owner. He knows who's king. The donkey, its master's crib, the, the trough that it feeds from. But if Israel does not know, my people do not understand. They've lost sight of him. That's the rebellion. The rebellion is the way in which we search for answers everywhere out there. The pain from heaven is the rebellion that says, I can find my answers internally. I can find my answers for my friends and my family. I can find the answers that I need for salvation from politicians. I can find my answers that I need to these life problems from what I'm going to learn commercially and through, in, through the internet. That's where I can find it. But rebellion is, is anytime we find life outside of him and we create a workaround of this God that we can find answers with without having to deal with him, God sits there and says, are you kidding me? I'm the fountain of grace. I am Yahweh in salvation. Why do you not come to me? Why are you in rebellion? The next part of it is in verses four through five, he calls them a sinful nation of people laden, look at this, with iniquity, offspring of evildoers. That's what I called my children yesterday. <laughs> not really. Children who deal corruptly. Look what it is. See, this is the key. They've forsaken the Lord. They've ignored him. 
They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They've utterly, they are utterly estranged. They don't even know me anymore. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? He's going to get into it. Why in the world do you keep getting beat up? It's like Stockholm Syndrome. You keep going back to the things that are actually hurting you or the woman that's caught up in an abusive relationship. Why do you keep going back to him? I'm the God of all salvation. I'm the one that provides for you. Not only not only repent or not only a forgiveness of your sin, but I will heal you. I will bring you the salvation you want. Why do you keep going back to that which hurts you? Because you're not going to find it in yourself or out there. I am the one. Why do you keep doing it? I'm the one that can heal. And seven through eight, he gets caught up in just this reality of why do we go out there? Don't you see that in being out there, you're humiliated. Now, I don't want you to see God as railing. I don't want you to see Isaiah as angry. In fact, he's just brokenhearted. He's brokenhearted because all the reality for which God created humanity to know him and love him, to be with him, for him to be our God and for us to be his people, every intent of the heart of God is that we would know and love him. And he sees humanity then rejecting him and even at a greater extent than those that are murderers and thieves and sexually immoral and all those people outside of it. That does break God's heart. What breaks his heart the most are not those outside of him. What breaks his heart the most are when his very own kids disregard him oh he says it is the broken heart of a father it's the broken heart of a god that adores us and loves us that's where he's at and if the lord of hosts had not let us left us a few survivors in other words if he hadn't protected us we should have all been like sodom and become like gomorrah our God wants to rescue us and save us. This is what he's after. This is the who. So he's answered the what, that we need to see life correctly. He's answered the who, Yahweh is salvation. That's the who. So what about then the when? And this is one of my favorite parts, even though most people aren't going to see it. Let me show you. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, and he tells us who they are, they're all kings of Judah. Now, if you've ever studied the Bible, and I'm just going to give you a very rough kind of chronology to help you understand what's going on so you can see how huge this is. About 2000 BC, again, this is rough, we have Abraham. So if you've ever read the Bible, book of Genesis, that's who we run into is Abraham. About 1500 BC, we run into Moses, that's Exodus. And we go on. And in about 1000 BC, we run into a guy named David. Now, just a few years after David died and he left the kingdom to his son Solomon, it broke up in about 930, and we began to have a northern tribe, which was called Israel. We began to have a southern tribe called Judah. Now, that northern tribe, what's key about them is that in 722 BC, because they rejected being in right relationship with God, they were taken off into captivity by the Assyrians, and nobody ever saw them as a nation anymore again. Now, what's Weird is, is then just a few years later, 200 years later, Judah gets taken into Babylon into captivity. But right in the middle of that, we have this guy, Isaiah, that's coming in before everything had gone wrong for the people of Judah. And he's crying out to these people to come into right relationship with God, to see and encounter this God of the universe, to not in any way take a path that is contrary to him. Come to this God. This is when it's all occurring. 
In the kingdom at this particular time, when he ministered, is a time of prosperity. There was safety. Everything was comfortable. Everything was just right. But they knew that there was an Assyrian empire out there, and eventually a Babylonian empire, that was sitting on their doorstep threatening it. And what Israel starts to do is, is instead of going to their God, instead of coming to Yahweh, who is salvation, they decided they were going to go make contracts. They were going to make deals with other governments around, and God can't believe that. they would run away from him. In other words, and I would say this, the question was, would they trust God to save them or would they trust in their own strategies to save them? Would they trust in themselves to save them? Would they trust in their friends and family to save them? Would they trust somehow that they could find their happiness and comfort and safety from politicians and from governments? Did they somehow think that's where they're going to find it, to which God, I think, puts in front of every single generation? And let me just say this to Cornerstone right now. I think every single generation is tested at the point at which there's the greatest urgency and the greatest threat. And the question that we're going to ask ourselves in our time, in our place, is do we trust God? Not do you trust Trump? Do you trust whatever Democrat might come out of all those people? Do you trust yourself? Do you trust, I don't know, Tesla? Do you trust any of those things? The grand question is, is do we trust God? It's the question that hits us every single morning when we wake up. There's this God who's calling us is, do you trust me? Do you want to come into a right allegiance with me? Do you believe that I'm the one that can provide true happiness? Do you believe that I'm the one that can provide true comfort? Do you believe that I'm the one that can provide true safety? Do you believe that? This is the question that's at the core of Isaiah, at the very end of it, is do you trust me? It's the most important question that you and I can ask, not only today, but every single day, is do we trust God? At the core of it, I really do think the story of Cornerstone, the story of the church in the United States, the story of the church around the world is this, how we decided to either trust him or not trust him. What's going to define us as a church is that very thing, is do we trust God? This is what Isaiah is going to do. Do you trust him? Now let's be more personal with your marriage. Do you trust him with your kiddos? Do you trust him with your job? Do you trust him with your finances? Do you trust him with the sin that you battle with all the time? Do you trust him with your hurts both in the past and in the present? Do you trust him with the pain that you experience in an ongoing way? Do you trust him as you look around this world and it feels like it's falling apart? Do you trust him is the key question to which the book of Isaiah says, Yahweh is salvation. Maybe another question just to finish it up is, I asked myself this this week. Why did Isaiah even speak out? Why did he choose to speak? See, here's what we learn about Isaiah. We learn that literally he he didn't exert much influence. In fact, God warned him that he wouldn't exert much influence at all over the people. There was very few that would take him seriously. In fact, towards the end of his life, history tells us that eventually under the reign of Manasseh, now here's the good news for Isaiah, he he got cut in two. By the way, that's a bad thing. 
Where did Isaiah get his courage? Why did he keep going? I think he saw the truth that we needed to see. See, every generation has to go back to this Yahweh is salvation, and we have to decide, do I trust him? We need to relearn what it means to see things through God's eyes. We need to, to know that now is our turn. Let me just say this, Cornerstone. That was their time back then, somewhere in another time and another place. And it's all been happening throughout time as God's people have been asking this question of do we trust Yahweh as our salvation? Let me ask you this cornerstone. With you sitting right there, and this is not something I'm asking you to respond to, I'm asking you to think about, is that do you trust Yahweh? Do you believe that Yahweh is your salvation, not just from hell, but through all of life? Because if you do believe that, I think it changes completely how you see things. All the time when I go back to Wyoming and Montana, people will say, when are you moving back to, you know, the good land instead of going to California, the home of the fruits and the nuts? So they say, who would ever want to live in California? You must be stupid to want to live out there. They're all a bunch of hicks anyways. No, I'm, just, I'm kidding. I'm a hick. I was made. Why? It's so good out here. Got Republicans in office. It's really red. You know what I'm saying? Woo! <laughs> California, bad. Montana, Wyoming, good. Why? Because God's people don't run. We don't run to safety. We don't run to comfort. We don't run towards our understanding of happiness. We run to the rock of our salvation. We run to Yahweh. And if Yahweh wants us here in this bastion of those terrible, awful, evil liberals, you know, what are we going to do? I mean, somehow, what is God? How is he going to affect them? Let me tell you this. Our God changes hearts, and he changes hearts in a powerful way. And if not in our lifetime, I promise you, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, everyone will one day stand before that living God where these myriads of angels sit around him proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come, they will stand before him. But in the meantime, if all of his people run away from the problem, who's going to be left to tell a group of people that Yahweh is salvation? We don't run. No. We stay where the need is greatest and we proclaim the greatest message ever that Yahweh is salvation. So cornerstone. Do you trust God? Do you believe that Yahweh is salvation? Because if you do, who? I think those of us that stay in this God-forsaken, liberal-infested world of California, we might actually find that we have answers to the greatest thing ever, Yahweh is salvation. Now, if you don't know who Yahweh is, you need to stay here because we're about ready to go through the whole book of Isaiah where you're going to run into the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. And I would say, if you don't know him, today is the day that you need to know that Yahweh is salvation. 
So if you've never come into encounter with Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, we'd love to talk with you today about how you can know him. We want to tell you there are answers to the biggest questions, that you can quit searching. You don't have to find it in philosophy, in religion, in a cartoon. You don't have to find it in your family, in your friends, or even look internally. I'm here to tell you that the Bible tells us that Yahweh is salvation, and I don't think you're here by accident if you don't know Jesus. Today is the day that you can come in and realize that our God truly is the one who saves, and you can trust him. Love to talk with you, but let me finish this way. Cornerstone. Do you believe Yahweh is salvation? Do you trust him? And if so, let's go. Amen. God, give us grace. Help us through the book of Isaiah to catch a glimpse of your greatness, the immensity of your grace the reality of the healing work you want to do in our lives so that your people here might be filled with joy, that we might be filled with hope, that we might be filled with clarity, that we might be filled with expectation so that your church can truly be your church to shine to a lost and a dying world that desperately needs your son Jesus, the hope of salvation. Father, we love you and we believe Yahweh is salvation in your precious name. Amen.